election meddling, compromise, economic intimidation, the Kremlin has developed a pattern of malign influence across Europe. In 2016, my colleague Heather Conley, her team, and the Center for the Study of Democracy released the Kremlin Playbook. The report revealed this pattern of economic influence and helped us understand Russia's interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. This year, Heather Conley and her team published a follow-up report, The Kremlin Playbook 2. It digs deeper into some of the less detectable dynamics that enable Russia's unvirtuous cycle of influence. You can find it at CSIS.org. In this episode, Heather Conley and her co-authors of The Kremlin Playbook 2 give you a behind-the-scenes look at what it was like to put together this report. Welcome to the behind-the-scenes tour, the making of the Kremlin Playbooks 1 and 2. I'm Heather Conley, the director of the Europe program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I am joined by my co-authors of the Kremlin Playbook 2, the enablers. First, a, a CSIS Europe program research associate, Donna Cienri, and of course, our colleague from the Center for the Study of Democracy, a European institute that is our partner key guy on the economic section, Martin Vladimirov, who was with us, we thought it would be really interesting to take you behind the scenes of what a think tank does to to create a monster 100-page plus mm-hmm. report that looks at the very detailed methods and methodology of Russian malign economic influence in Europe. So welcome, Martin. Welcome, uh, Donna. Thank you for for joining this behind-the-scenes tour. First, I want to start with Martin. CSIS and CSD has have had a collaboration since uh, at least 2015 when we worked on the first Kremlin playbook. What is your sense of this four-year odyssey as we looked at Russian malign influence? I'd love your impressions and, and take us to your behind the scenes. How does CSD do the work to get ready to, uh, to do this report and produce what we just produced? Thank you, Heather, and thank you for the great collaboration in the past four years. Um, CSIS has been the only, I would say, think tank that actually uh, was interested in the topic when we first uh, pitched it here in DC in 2015. Uh, And I would say that even going back to 2009, when we had this idea that we need to measure somehow the Russian economic influence in Central and Eastern Europe, there were few voices that were concerned about it, including in uh, high-level foreign policy circles. Uh, and it was great that we were able to actually find an amazing, I think, a scheme to explain how exactly Russian economic influence penetrates Central and Eastern Europe. And with the current version, Kremlin Playbook 2, also some uh, countries in Western Europe that we have called the enablers. And this mechanism, I think, explains quite well the transformation from economic footprint and economic power into political leverage. And uh, we at CSD were engaged heavily on on the economic side, trying to uh, crunch the data, gather the statistics, and um, 
put a number, a single number, so to speak, on uh, the Russian economic footprint in each country, each uh, eight countries that we have looked at. Oh, no, actually, there are more now. I'm, I'm, I'm losing count, <laughs> 11, I think. So um, we st- our methodology steps on basically three main indicators. Structural trade dependencies, uh, including in sectors like energy, imports and exports of different key raw materials, um, or uh, the dependence of countries in Europe on the Russian market. Um, Secondly, we look at foreign direct investment. um, And in this case, we have tried to analyze mergers and acquisitions, so Russian companies buying out European entities or buying out some strategic assets uh, in these 11 countries. Uh, We have looked thirdly, and I think most importantly in terms of added value to the current studies and current level of research on the topic, uh, namely the corporate presence. So trying to understand uh, the networks of corporate ownership that are related to Russia, so directly or indirectly owned by Russia. And we try to estimate what is the share of Russian-owned company revenue out of the total revenue in the economy, which is uh, uh, which is the number that we use to represent corporate presence. Uh, and um, we didn't expect these numbers to be so high. We, we thought that Russia could not be able to control as large as a cash flow as it did. But uh, partially this is the reason, the reason how we got to this high numbers is that we were able to disentangle the ultimate beneficial ownership of many of these Russian investments. Uh, uh, many of them appeared to be Western investments, investment coming from the Netherlands, coming from uh, Austria, Luxembourg, uh, the British Virgin Islands. But when uh, we were able to use corporate databases, both private uh, and national, uh, statistics to disentangle who exactly stands behind these uh, investments and these entities. This involves quite a lot of investigative work apart from number crunching. So we definitely relied on uh, partnerships with experts, uh, investigative journalists, economists, security experts from the countries, um, uh, from the case study countries, so to speak. And without their invaluable work, we would never be able to really deep dive into into the corporate and security network that uh, are controlled by Russia. So, Martin, you raised two really key points that I think what we've tried to do differently uh, in the study of Russian malign influence, a lot of uh, other think tanks have put out amazing quality reports on this, but it, it feels very anecdotal. We tried to quantify that Russian economic footprint and then see what that what that economic driver was then creating politically. Mm. Um, and so your efforts to quantify were critical. And we should also say, look, we did the best we can with databases, with open sources, but we know Russian malign influence is designed to be opaque and hidden. So even though we arrived at that big number, uh, we can probably imagine that that number maybe pales in comparison to what the actual number is. So we add your incredible economic data-driven analysis, and we marry it with a case study 
approach. And this is where Donna's sweat equity comes into it. And why do we do case studies? Because what we're trying to show is the methodology, the pathways for Russian economic influence to do its work. And you can only understand that how it drives in the country, because every country has a different cultural, historical, economic linkages um, uh, with Russia, which deeply influence how that malign influence works. So you're right. Uh, we have now uh, completed 11 case study countries. So Kremlin Playbook 1, five countries, Latvia, Hungary, Slovakia, Bulgaria, and Serbia. The second one, we got so ambitious, we went to six countries. And as you mentioned, Italy, Austria, the Netherlands, the Czech Republic, Romania, and Montenegro. So Donna, turning to you, you were in charge of gathering all of the case study information, working with Martin to pull the economics, and then we had to do the analysis. So to help us understand what drove you crazy as you were doing this process, <laughs> but what were some of the aha moments? Because in this report and the last one, you as you research this, I think you come out with, oh my gosh, I am seeing how the Kremlin playbook works in these countries. So tell us what you thought about that. Absolutely. The key point, the very first moment, and I would like to just tie it back to what Martin said, is the work of the country experts. Because their initial analysis and really deep assessments of each country is what forms the base of the work that we do later. So reading through all of these different cases, seeing what seems more important or at least a more vivid example is was the first step for me. Obviously, there's a base of research that I gathered ahead of time. But then once I received those case studies, the first economic assessments, it was really digging through the different cases, seeing what would make more sense, and then turning them into a really condensed version that matched with political analysis that I had done on my own. And only after these do you start seeing, as you were saying, the different patterns and the aha moments came at least for what we call the enablers, after having done those three, so Italy, Austria, and Netherlands, after having done those three, you start feeling like, oh, I've read this somewhere before, but not in the same country. I remember seeing this, a very similar pattern in this other country. Mm. Is it the same in the third one? And you start trying to pull all these different threads. That was really how it went for realizing those big patterns drove me crazy. I don't, I don't know uh, the edits perhaps, but also one thing that is frustrating but important because you want to do the work well, and I hadn't experienced the first report, is when you feel like there is something, but you can't, you don't have enough behind it. Or you try, you really try like needle in a haystack because as you were saying, it's designed to be opaque. Russian influence is designed to be opaque. And you're looking for this little thing and you th you feel like you know it's there because all these things align and they're really strange and there's got to be something behind and it takes you a long time and the collaboration of country experts to really find this thing. Obviously, I don't read German or Czech or, you know, so. Well, and I think those uh, original source language, having those in-country experts uh, were absolutely key. And I think there was, I will say, creative tension between CSIS and CSD as we were writing this. And But we wanted this to be truly transatlantic. So I would say for the U.S. perspective, uh, one of the things we really wanted to highlight was the 
use of the illicit financing, the use of Western economic systems and networks to amplify Russian influence. So incorporation, beneficial ownership, money laundering. And that was the the part that we felt U.S. policymakers needed to focus on from a policy and a legislative perspective. I could feel, Martin, from CSD, the highlight that that you wanted to bring to U.S. policymakers in particular was this extraordinary concentration of Russian malign influence around the energy sector. That's something you feel personally in Bulgaria. It's something that came out so strongly in the first uh, Kremlin playbook. And I think for us, we were trying to manage those two uh, important issues and how to highlight them and manage Mm -hmm. them. So just to say, the beauty of this 100-plus report that's going to come out it had many many eyes, many hands, lots of back and forth. It was polishing that diamond in the rough. But you, we did feel the different prioritizations mm. where I think the U.S. system was focused, where you felt particularly the Europeans needed to focus. Uh, so it was fantastic. My next round of questions, the moment that stands out to you the most during this research period. So for me, we hold a workshop, a first workshop in one of the case study countries to begin our process where the in-country experts come and and we sit down and we really plot out some of the key issues, make sure we have the economic data, make sure we're we're focusing on the right things. The day before we all uh, came together in, in Prague in the Czech Republic for our first workshop, was we were just learning of the news that a Slovak investigative uh, journalist and his fiance Jan Kusiak were murdered. And they were murdered because uh, the journalist Jan was investigating uh, corruption in the Slovak government and organized crime. That to me was the most poignant moment of of my uh, during the research period because I understood in some ways the work that we're doing uncovering what is designed to be opaque and hidden and uh, and illicit is deadly. Mm -hmm. And that was, I have to say, it took my breath away in thinking about that. So that was my moment uh, during our research period. Martin, what was your moment? What one thing that struck you during the report? Well, for one thing is that I think for all the ability of, you know, national statistics to reveal patterns and trends, the on-the-ground assessment by people who deal with these subjects every day is probably the most difficult part and the most invaluable insight because it brings these numbers together and it puts them into perspective. Um, in that in that respect, I think when we have been seeing trends, you know, dry numbers, rising foreign direct investment from Russia into the region, understanding what kind of deals stand behind that, you can do that only to a certain extent from outside. So traveling to the countries, actually going there and speaking to people, uh, also speaking to them remotely and people explaining all the governance deficits that have been exploited by these investments paints you a different picture. That, that that was one of the reasons why at the end we developed also with you guys uh, the this virtuous cycle of state capture. And that's why it struck such a chord with, I think, U.S. policymakers and I think to a lesser degree in EU for, for a number of reasons that go, and they are partially related to our research, but uh, it struck a chord because the, it really shows a mechanism that you can see even perpetrating here in the U.S., say, in, in, in one form or the other. So this struck me a lot. 
we believe that to be an isolated case, you know, an isolated pattern for Central and Eastern Europe. And it turns out this methodology and this thinking and pattern can be seen all around the world. I would say in the US, but we're thinking about Latin America, Africa, China, Southeast Asia. So this has really put the, the, the whole research into perspective. And on a more scary note, as I think you started the discussion, following the publication of the first Kremlin playbook, uh, we got uh, quite significantly attacked by, by Russian hackers, I think. Uh, for a period of one month, we were the most attacked website uh, in Central and Eastern Europe. And we have just, by the way, started seeing the same pattern now after the launch of the the, the yeah. small version of the Kremlin playbook too. So it's, well, let's see what happens in uh, in the beginning of April. It's really interesting. Yeah, I know. I'm going to, we'll talk about a little bit of that and sort of the, the unique features of producing <laughs> reports like this and what think tanks have to do. But Donna, what was your highlight or at least the, the most poignant moment during the research mm. period? Most poignant, I completely agree with Martin when it comes to realizing this happens in so many places. I think my most surprising finding, I suppose, was Austria, because people know very little about Austria. And I'm not trying to single out one country, but that was my own surprise of finding out the depth of connections with Russia and the use of the political links, the economic links. I just thought it was fascinating and worrying at the same time, because it's kind of a sleeper country, I guess, because nobody really realizes, except maybe some people in intelligence community. or, But there's there's not enough that was known about Austria, and I'm really glad we did this. Um, on a more positive note, surprising for me was, particularly for our second workshop in Washington, D.C., was the interest that the people around the table had in what we were doing and the enthusiasm that people still, especially policymakers, both executive and legislative still seem to have in this work. That is, I find that really uplifting and surprising. Well, that's perfectly a segue because I want to talk about impact. I, I think, uh, speaking for myself, um, when we released the first criminal playbook in October of 2016, I had no idea that this would be the most downloaded report in CSIS history. And we're almost 55 years old, so, and we write a lot of reports. So that was, uh, and you're right, it just hit a moment um, that it helped explain something to people. And little did we know the, the the real policy implications that were unfolding in Washington in very real time. So I, I for me, the impact has been this extraordinary need in for, for members of Congress, for the administration, for the intelligence communities to have something, have a report that's so accessible that explains what is happening, and then puts a why behind it. Um, and so we continue, I, I, I continue to be struck that we are getting requests already. Uh, when is it ready? When can it come out? We need this information. We can't wait. People are passing this report around NATO headquarters and the State Department and European capitals. I've just never seen anything like this. And I just, I think I just credit that we just provided a vehicle at a timely moment that helps people explain why. But Martin, in, in Europe, and that was more from the U.S. side of the impact, what was uh, what was the impact in Europe of both the first one, but and hopefully we're starting to see some impact on the second Kremlin playbook? Um, well, the impact in Europe, in policy making circles at least, was a little bit more muted. 
but I think it still was recognized as a as a very illuminating piece, especially in Central and Eastern European countries, which have already done quite a lot of work in countering uh, Russian malign influence. Uh, I think Czech Republic and Czech authorities were quite, quite interested in our work. And they actually, I think, have borrowed many of our uh, theses in their own uh, work and in their own reports, which was quite interesting. Also in the EU, especially on, on the part of the Western Balkans teams, the DG NIR, the Director General NIR, which deals with enlargement and expansion of the EU. Um, in their latest uh, strategy, long-term strategy for the Western Balkans, they included uh, you know, Russian influence directly as a uh, and, and, and included it in a similar fashion, a similar explanation to what we wrote in, in the Kremlin playbook, uh, that they need to fight that, that this is a concern that they actually need to address. Because I think before 2016, especially in Europe, there was uh, a denial, denial. So people would talk about Ukraine as if Ukraine is a very distant place, far away, uh, and, uh, and never even mentioned uh, much about Russian influence within Europe, except for the, for the isolated case of natural gas supply cuts, etc. But then uh, um, I think it's part of the, part of the reason is that um, uh, Russian disinformation, of course, and uh, propaganda and uh, different civil society groups that have been, and lobby groups that have been promoting the Russian position in, the, in European capitals were able to actually take hold of the narrative and prevent uh, this uh, analysis to to actually take hold. I mean, before 2016, I think Kremlin Playbook uh, stopped this pattern. And uh, when we have been briefing also the German foreign ministry, the French foreign ministry, I think cur- currently, although they might not be as uh, alert uh, to the problem as the US policymakers, I think they're coming to terms that, I mean, uh, we can no longer ignore that and that this is a real national security threat. I hope the Kremlin playbook to sorry uh, to uh, to Europe, but I think the Kremlin playbook too could serve an even can have an even larger impact in the EU by actually promoting many of the uh, the policy recommendations on anti-money laundering. Because while the US has done so much on this issue, Europe has done very little, and there is still a lot of legwork to be done in terms of uh, synchronizing national legislation, creation of supranational regulatory framework that actually can enforce uh, anti-money laundering procedures, uh, sanctions, uh, you know, Magnitsky Act, etc., etc. So, Donna, I'm going to ask, you, know, you are a European foreign and security policy analyst, but the Kremlin Playbook 2 made you learn a lot of new terms that you helped me to learn. Transfer pricing, round tripping. Uh, you learned a financial services vocabulary. Tell us how you explored that. It's hard when you have to stretch into new terms, but try to still provide that analysis. It is hard, but I thought it was fascinating. It's... I. That's the beauty of this kind of job, too, is that you get to go into these different areas. And obviously, CSE was really helpful in providing some of the language as well for all of us noobs out there. But I tried to go through the ones that were really important. Obviously, you can always add more, but it seemed like the best thing to do was pick the ones that are most important for Russian flows, 
try to find a definition to understand it for yourself to then understand how it fits in the whole picture. And I had a lot of fun digging into that. I feel definitely a little more knowledgeable about all these different terms today. I also had no idea of the extent of the corporate service providers sector that we talk about a lot in the report, but it's it's a key part of this. It, it is really the enabling industry of all these flows. And I thought it was really important and fascinating to bring that to light and to understand what their role is in all this. I think the challenge and our true contribution as think tanks is to break down really complex ideas and concepts and make them accessible and tell people why this is important, why they care, why they should care, and then why do we need to make those changes. And I would say it's probably easier to explain it in clear terms when you didn't understand it in the first place. If you're already very good at something, likelihood is you won't be as good at explaining it to someone who doesn't understand. It's just like if you're really good at math and it comes naturally to you, it's harder to explain it to people who don't understand. So having to go through the process of understanding it for myself, I think, made it easier to try and render it in slightly easier terms. I hope that the sweet spot for this report is that the, the foreign security policy community learned a lot about illicit financing and, and financial transactions, but I'm hoping the financial services industry is learning about their role in national security. And what we try to do in the recommendations is uh, bring it to a place that we feel a little more comfortable about, talking about it as a national security, putting it in a context of thinking about how we can fight this, because our, our conclusion was, you know, the, the this economic space is the battle space. And the West isn't acting like it. Our adversaries are weaponizing these uh, tools, and we're letting them do it. And some, in many places, we're encouraging them to do it. So it's, I think, hopefully those both of those communities can can come together. My last question, sort of the, the interesting part, and Martin had already uh, talked a little bit about it, was, you know, the Kremlin Playbook 1 and 2 required some different things that we don't normally do at CSIS. The first thing this required was a legal review. And uh, we are very grateful in the United States to have wonderful First Amendment speech protection, which allows us to be very clear in our analysis, um, as long as it's well substantiated uh, and factually based. But what we found is in other think tank communities in, in Washington who have reported in similar areas and Russian malign influence have actually been sued. And so this required a legal review. And that's that that puts it into different context where you are placing your organization potentially in jeopardy to re- to write and be transparent about something that people must know about. The second thing is cybersecurity. And um, when you write about Russian uh, activities, you sometimes get hit. Uh, Martin, I just may have you pull that out a little bit. What did CSD have to do differently? I know we tell our wonderful uh, team here that we we get hit quite often. We This has been in the news, so this is not revealing any secrets. Mm. Uh, we uh, attract a lot of attention that Really, we have to put those cybersecurity guards up. What happened at CSD, too? We, we, we talk constantly because we're getting hit the same way. Just a quick point on, on your previous discussion of, uh, you know, translating uh, uh, data and complicated terms into 
policy making uh, messages. I think uh, and, and CSD has been modeled uh, on upon CSIS uh, since its uh, beginning of, in 1989 when I was born. <laughs> uh, so it's really our motto as well to bridge academia with policy making circles. So th- this is the main goal. Uh, so we're not producing science, we're producing policy reports that translate science into targeted you know uh, measures uh, and policy recommendations on the cyber thing uh, i mean we were quite surprised uh, about the attention that we attracted uh, to our work uh, and uh, we had to beef up our, our security cyber security quite quite a lot i think that um, of course if someone tries to really take us down if they devote enough resources it's always possible but we learned our lesson and uh, i think we're much better prepared now to defend ourselves uh, in in general most attacks are ddos attacks ddos attacks and flooding we're basically trying to stop the operation of our website we've seen that cyber hackers have tried to penetrate within our servers but unsuccessfully so far so i th- i think so far we are we are safe but uh we keep our fingers crossed. Well, so far, so good. Absolutely. Well, I think summing up, this report took well over 18 months. Uh, we're probably 120 pages when the full report hits. It is an incredible, an incredible report, uh, I have to say. Uh, we've looked and reviewed and wrote every every word. It has, it quantifies, it measures, it's impactful, it describes the methodology, and we hope it changes policies. That's the most important thing. So we encourage uh, you to go read the Kremlin Playbook 2, The Enablers, but you got to start with Kremlin Playbook 1 to uh, understand the approach. But uh, Martin, it's been a phenomenal partnership with the Center for the Study of Democracy in Sofia. Thank you so much for your great partnership. Donna, the amazing research associate uh, that you are, incredible work. And uh, thank you for your behind-the-scenes tour of Kremlin Playbook 2, The Enablers.